Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Tink. Lauren Passell and her innovative PR company, Tink, are book-obsessed and podcast-obsessed. Tink specializes in getting authors on podcast tours. Forbes called it the, quote, the first podcast PR company for authors. This is like the coolest idea I have to say. Podcasting is a new wild world and pitching to podcasters like me, I guess, is an art. So Tink specializes in setting authors up for success. To learn more, you can visit tinkmedia.com or subscribe to Lauren's podcast newsletter at podcastthenewsletter.com. So definitely check out Lauren. She's amazing. And for any authors out there, you should definitely check her out for getting your book onto fantastic podcasts like this one and so many other book podcasts out there and all types of podcasts. I'm thrilled to be here today with Kate Elizabeth Russell, who's the debut author of My Dark Vanessa, a novel which will be published in 20 plus languages. Originally from Maine, Kate earned an MFA from Indiana University and a PhD from the University of Kansas. Her fiction and nonfiction has appeared in Necessary Fiction, Quarterly West, Mid-American Review, Hayden's Fair Review, and other journals. She currently lives in Wisconsin. So welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to discuss my dark Vanessa. <laughs> Not stop thinking about this book. Can you please tell listeners what it's about? Sure. So my dark Vanessa, it tells the story of Vanessa Y, who at 
32 years old, she learns that her high school English teacher, Jacob Strain, has been accused of sexual abuse by another former student. And this accusation, it rattles her to her core because she had a relationship with this teacher starting when she was 15, but in her eyes, it wasn't abuse. It was love, and she she feels very, very sure of that. And so the novel it then moves back and forth in time between the present day and this accusation, and then back in her teenage years, showing how the relationship started, how it continued, and then at the same time showing the long-lasting consequences on her adult life. How did you come up with this plot? Well, I worked on the book for a really long time, a really, really long time, and so... Like, give me a ballpark. I started writing it when I was a teenager, and what drew me to this story then, though it it took a very different form back then, but that was around the age that I started to become aware of how teenage girls were sexualized in our culture, and... That was confusing, being a teenage girl myself. And so writing fiction was my way of making sense of that. And so that was sort of the seed of it, how it started. And then over the years, draft after draft, it sort of evolved. But I had a real breakthrough when I was, like, around my 30th birthday, which coincided with starting a PhD program in creative writing. And it was then that I figured out this present-day plot line of another student coming forward and accusing that teacher. And once I figured out that plot line, it gave me the answer to this question of, like, why tell this story now? And and what is sort of propelling the story forward? It gave, it gave the whole narrative a sort of urgency. And then... After that, Me Too started to happen, which is, I guess, a whole other conversation. But that was one of the most surreal things about the writing process was sort of arriving at this plot line and then seeing something really similar play out in in the real world at the same time. You're like, yes. <laughs> no, I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it was more, I was just really freaked out at yeah. first because I wasn't quite sure how to handle that or, or and it wasn't. It took a while for me to figure out how to, how to address it. And once I realized really that my book would be read in this context of me too, sort of whether I wanted it to be or not, and realizing how important this cultural moment was, I I really tried to lean into it. I mean, not too hard. You know, people people are calling it like a Me Too story. And I think that that's understandable, but I am also trying to show a story that isn't the type that we necessarily have heard mm-hmm. that often because Vanessa is a protagonist who she doesn't want to come forward. She doesn't want to post her story on social media or talk to a journalist. And fiction is a way to gain access to a story like that. Vanessa also had a lot of sympathy towards Jacob Strain Absolutely. in the book. She didn't view it as abuse. She right. didn't think it was. She felt like he had a problem mm-hmm. and she understood it and she was there to soften the blow in a way. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. I think I really wanted to make her perceptive, especially as a teenager, because even though he's manipulating her and grooming her and and coercing her in ways that she doesn't totally understand at that age. She also sees him 
pretty clearly. And I, in some ways, I wanted to make her even more perceptive as a teenager than she is in her 30s. Because in her 30s, I think she has these blinders on by, you know, out of necessity. Because on a certain level, she knows better at 32. Like, she knows on some level, that she was abused, that this was wrong, that this has deeply harmed her life. But at 15, her naivete, I think, gave her the ability to have a lot of empathy for him and able to romanticize him in this quote-unquote problem that he has. I feel like by the time she got into her 30s, you had more of a question mark of, is she? does she have any mental illness of her own? Yeah. Is this caused by what happened? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like you danced around, you know, you showed us some of the symptoms, but right. maybe question mark, question mark. Yeah, I tried to do that in in some different ways. Definitely with her. Like I wanted the book to be read and it to be fairly clear, like she's suffering from trauma in her 30s, but she's suffering from it in these ways that are kind of grotesque, like her, you know, their slovenly mm-hmm. apartment and and her struggling to do sort of the basic necessities of life. But then also as a teenager, I wanted to show her being like disorganized mm-hmm. and having trouble concentrating and sort of not being the best student, but also being really smart. And I I knew that readers would come into this book looking for sort of an explanation of why this happened to her. Mm-hmm. Like what made her so susceptible to this man? And I think there are sort of easy go-to answers for that. Like, oh, were were her parents like not paying attention to her? Or was she, was this girl in question, not even necessarily Vanessa, but just thinking of a of a kid who mm-hmm. finds themselves in in a situation like Vanessa does? Like, was she already promiscuous? Was she already sexually experienced? And like looking to these answers, like that's the reason why. And I didn't want to give the reader any one thing that they could point to and be like, oh, well, that's why she, you know, was convinced by him or or tricked by him. There are, I think, different things that you could pick up on in the book, but I didn't want any of them to be like, and that's the answer. And that's why, why this happened. I don't think it could ever be so simple anyway. Right, right, right. right. That's more true to life. I feel like I read this as not only in Vanessa's shoes, but also from the point of view of her parents as a parent myself Mm -hmm. and thinking, you know, what did her parents do wrong? Like, did you see them as enablers, which effectively they were? Was there anything they did raising her that made her, as you said, more susceptible? Was it just a confluence of a lot of different factors? Yeah, I think that was my thought, that it was just a lot of different factors. And with her parents, you know, I thought of the relationship with her and her parents as not great, but not bad. Mm -hmm. Kind of just ordinary. And especially as a teenager and, and, you know, feeling like you enjoy spending time with your parents to a certain extent, but on the other hand, you kind of want them to go away and completely leave you alone. But I do think that choices in that are made in the book by her parents, maybe especially her mother, are could be seen as enabling, but I think could also be seen as just wanting to protect her daughter and knowing like it's an impossible situation. Like if you suspect 
your kid is being abused, then what do you do? You uh, like go to the police, but then what does that, like that would enter, that would invite in a, another round of trauma, inevitably. Mm-hmm. Even if justice is eventually served, it would be, you would be putting your kid through something. And so that was what was on my mind as a writer when I was crafting those scenes with her mother. But it's difficult, and and there's room for disagreement there, which was important to me to ha- to leave that room for disagreement for the reader because I think that's what makes people want to talk about a book is if there's different there's room for different interpretations of it. What are the other secrets to writing a book that everybody's talking about <laughs> since we're on that topic? I mean, this book has gotten so much attention; it's on every list of anticipated books. It's, you know, are, are you even ready for the the I don't even know the word. Are you ready for the <laughs> all the media attention and what <laughs> let me say that again. Are you are you ready for all of the excitement and attention around the launch of this book? I mean, I don't know if I can be totally ready for it because this isn't it's it's all new to me and it's it's overwhelming but really exciting. But mostly I'm just I'm so anxious and excited for the book to be out and in the hands of readers and for the book to do whatever it's going to do and for readers to respond to it however they're going to respond. And I am i know that I'm tasked with helping bring the book into the world, but I'm really looking forward to when I feel like the book can really stand on its own and I can just kind of stand back and, and watch it. And it's in terms of like writing it and all of this is surprising to me. I especially because I worked on it for so long, I always figured this subject matter is 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 dark and difficult and so because of that I never really anticipated it finding a, a really wide readership, but people want to talk about this subject matter right now. I think people want to engage with it. And so I think that is certainly part of what is fueling interest in it. But I also tried to write the the best book I possibly could. I was going to say, I wouldn't you know? sell yourself short. <laughs> I think a, it's, it's the a, book itself. I think this book would be a phenomenal book regardless of what was going on in the cultural yeah. climate zeitgeist. It's a fine line, you know, trying to balance how... Right. Trying not to sell yourself short, but at the same time knowing like it is timely. It's timely. And I'm still I'm still on some level struggling to believe that this is all really happening. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just keep reminding you. Okay. <laughs> occasional text. It's, it's on. It's it's Perfect. another day in this new early. <laughs> Kidding aside, what you were saying about how you craft something that people wanna leave room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. You have a PhD in creative yes. writing. Yeah. Are there things that you learned or you got out of that program or just your lifetime that you think contribute to making a great book that you, in the back of your head, said, oh, I have to make sure to include this element or this, I want this in my book in some way? Yeah, I mean, so much of it, and I think this is a common thing that that writers say, so much of it comes down to character, absolutely, when writing a book that you want to be considered literary. I feel like you, for me, I really have to lean into the characters as much as I can, even characters that you don't necessarily want to. Like I, the amount of time I had to spend 
thinking about strain mm -hmm. and trying to get into his head, even though the book is never from his perspective. I still tried to think about him as closely as I could. That wasn't something I necessarily wanted to do, <laughs> but I knew that the book needed it. And so spending a lot of time learning as much as I could about the characters, even if that uh, what I learned doesn't end up explicitly on the page, just me knowing the characters and in ways that like the reader never necessarily will, that was really important through the writing process, but also being as invested in the plot as I possibly could, which doesn't always come naturally to me. So that was hard work of like having big whiteboards and, you know, markers and, you know, different colored markers and, and keeping track of all the subplots and making sure that I didn't lose track of anything and, and trying to make sure that everything wasn't necessarily resolved, but at least would feel satisfying to the reader by the end of the book. That was a really... I knew that that was necessary, but that was maybe the hardest, the hardest thing was, was trying to keep up with a really... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy. And you'll get a perfect therapist for you. There are 35,000 therapists to choose from. So you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash moms don't have time today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash moms don't have time. The pot, plot really propulsive, really propulsive as much as I could, though, as a literary writer, that, that can be tough. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been working on this for years, yeah. over a decade. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure you worked on it in all different types of places and different mm -hmm. times, but in terms of your process of, and 
the visual you can create of you sitting and writing this book. <laughs> Are you a person who likes to go to coffee shops and write? Did you do it always at night? Or what was your process like in, in terms of the actual writing of it? Definitely coffee shops and libraries. I'm, I write best when I get out of the house, especially if I'm struggling. I find like getting out of the house and being in a coffee shop especially, I feel some kind of, like I feel more compelled to work or like obligated to work if I'm in a coffee shop because I feel like people can see my computer screen. Not that anyone's looking at me, but I just feel like if I'm just messing around on social media, people will see. Whereas like I, I, it gives me more accountability, I guess. And also liking the background noise. But also once I was really, really deep in the writing process, I would just set up on the couch and write all night, which that was the best. Wow. That was that was the best feeling, the feeling of like not wanting to sleep because the writing was going so well that I really missed that. I can't wait to get back, get back to that point when I'm writing again. But anyway, coffee shops I, are always my go-to place. And there's food and drink there. Hey, you know? why not? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Have you ever written any short stories or worked on any other projects along the way while you were constructing this beautiful novel? Yeah, I mean, with so... I was in my PhD program from 2013 to 2018. And during that time, you know, I took two years of coursework and then I had my doctoral exams, which was like three reading lists of like, I think it was like maybe 200 books and articles that I had to read and, and be, you know, have an exam on. And then I got to write the dissertation. Finally, I had three semesters of just writing the dissertation slash novel. So that was great. But the years leading up to that, I always just wanted to work on it, but I had to do the coursework. I had to study for exams. So I always felt like I had all these other obligations. And on top of all of that, I was teaching the whole time. So I had a lot to juggle. And it was always like, I can't wait. I can't wait until I'm at the dissertation stage and then I can just totally devote myself to writing this. And I think when I finally got to that point where writing the book was my job, I just threw myself into it and tried to take advantage of it as much as I could because I was like, when else am I going to have be in the position where this is my job? But now suddenly I find myself in the <laughs> when my next book is going to be able to to be written in that situation too, which is such a gift. And I don't take it for granted even a little bit. Yeah. And is your goal or was your goal to be a professor at all or an academic? It's, or? I mean, I when I was really young, yeah. Or even when I was an undergrad, I still wanted that. I still thought of that as a goal. But then once I got into grad school and the realities of the academic job market were sort of, I was confronted with them. I was like, I don't know. I didn't see myself as competitive or, or qualified. But now... I'm like, now I have a book, maybe maybe I would be. So it's uh, having to rethink that. And But now I'm like, is that really what I want to do? Still figuring it out. But I do miss teaching. But being being a professor, there's a lot of other stuff, like on top of teaching that you have to do. So we'll see. And you mentioned earlier before we started recording that you follow your husband around for his <laughs> academic life Which as well. I'm so happy to. And it, I'm in such a privileged position right now, too, that I can. And I was always up for that. But now we, I don't know, we, we view ourselves as very, very lucky in that case that we can be really flexible and, and open-minded about where where we end up. And we just hope that we end up somewhere that where we're happy and that we like. And we'll see. 
We'll see what the future holds. You are a far better wife than I am. <laughs> I, would n- I would not be like, I'm anywhere gonna... you want to go. I like, can't, I like pick the restaurants you get to. I can't even like, def- I can't delegate anything. So. I'm going to make my husband listen to this. No, I mean, I mean you got major points in my book. Uh, you're like a, you know, wife idol now of mine. <laughs> not to delve into your own past. And I know the page in the beginning of the book says this bears no resemblance. Mm. This is all fiction mm-hmm. and, and everything. But you did attend a private day school mm-hmm. in Maine, as Vanessa did. Well, she went to a boarding school. Mm-hmm. But you went to a private day school in ninth and 10th grade, and then you left for personal reasons. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk about what happened then or any similarities? Or even did some? Did you know someone this happened to? Or is there anything? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk about personal stuff necessarily. But but regarding the the note at the beginning of the book, I just I wanted to be upfront about the book being fiction because it would misrepresent the book, misrepresent myself to to call it anything other than fiction. And also I I really think it does a disservice to the reader by letting the book be viewed as anything other than fiction because I want this book to be something that readers can engage with in a way that, like I said, leaves room for disagreement. Or I think a reader viewing Vanessa as frustrating and disappointing and doing the wrong thing, I think that's totally valid, totally valid. And I think that type of reading response to nonfiction is is trickier because then you're dealing with someone's actual life. And especially a story or a piece of nonfiction that deals with trauma, that's that's an ethical gray area for me. And and, and people may, might disagree, but this book is fiction. But at the same time, there are parallels between Vanessa and I, some of which are obvious. Like even if you just read my bio, I grew up in Eastern Maine, mm-hmm. like Vanessa. So, and I know the way that we read debut novels, maybe especially debut novels written by women, we tend to read them as autobiographical. And I know that. And so wanted to be clear about it being fiction, as clear as I possibly could. But your question about witnessing this type of behavior on the part of the teacher, I was a student for 25 years of my life overall. And as a young woman in an academic setting, I don't think it's possible to not be on the receiving end of inappropriate behavior. So absolutely, I saw it. I I was on the receiving end of it. But it takes a lot of different forms. And it's not always as dramatic as being seduced by your middle-aged English teacher in high school. It, it can... It can be a professor who was always great, but then there's that one interaction alone in his office and you don't know how to make sense of it. Or it can be, you know, taking a workshop where the professor says, let's all meet at the bar. And then it's a class, but you're all drinking and it's not on campus and the lines seem to be blurred. And so what I tried to do when I was writing the book is to not look at these things in terms of, like a hierarchy and say like, okay, this is worse and then this isn't quite as bad and maybe this is okay, but rather to just think about how all of these instances of inappropriate behavior that are so common, how they're all connected and how they all sort of speak to the same problem. And that's why it was it was important for me to show Vanessa in college because that's a, another academic setting that's really similar to her boarding school, but she suddenly finds herself in a situation where like it's it's okay for 
professors to marry their students here, whereas at her boarding school, that clearly wasn't okay. And so it's showing how difficult it is for someone who has been through this kind of trauma to navigate the social norms that feel like they're shifting under her feet. I could listen to you talk. <laughs> you talk in complete, well-crafted paragraphs. It's really amazing. Oh, I'm just you. like marveling at the structure of oh my your gosh, thank you. words. It's like amazing as I ramble on myself. I just wanted to read one quote of yours from the book. You said, so Strain says, as a culture, we treat victimhood as an extension of childhood. So when a woman chooses victimhood, she is therefore freed from personal responsibility, which then compels others to take care of her, which is why once a woman chooses victimhood, she will continue to choose it again and again. Vanessa goes on to say, I'm not a victim because I've never wanted to be. And if I don't want to be, then I'm not. That's how it works. The difference between rape and sex is state of mind. You can't rape the willing, right? So what do you think about this? <laughs> with, I, with the quote from Strain, or Vanessa remembering Strain uh, saying those things about victimhood, I think that it makes sense for him to see victimhood in that way, that it's something that women choose and that they find like comfort in because string goes on to say like the world has a has a vested interest in keeping you helpless you meaning young women but so does he he has he he's very invested in in keeping her helpless and so i imagined strain seeing victimhood even just the idea of it as something potentially really appealing to Vanessa and something that would potentially give her a lot of strength. And so it made sense in, in to me to have him be trying to undercut the very idea of it in this really manipulative way. But the way that Vanessa thinks about it, I think, you know, when she says, I don't want to be a victim and the difference between rape and sex is state of mind. That's how I was taught. That's how I was taught to understand consent. And it's difficult to argue with because I think that's the way that a lot of us were taught it. But what I wanted to do in that moment was to show how flawed that thinking is and how incomplete and how easily it is for someone who has been victimized to sort of parrot back these things that we've all been taught, but show how easily they can be twisted into sort of excusing an abuser. And is part of your goal in the book helping people who might be going through this situation now or who have have gone through it in the past or might in, encounter it and then have some background and framework to process it? Yes and no. I mean, that definitely wasn't, it wasn't, the goal when I was writing it. Always the sort of main goal was just like getting the story down and, and engaging with the, this is going to sound wrong because the book is so difficult, but the the enjoyment I got from just writing it, the enjoyment I get from writing anything, that was You're that allowed, was what you're allowed to enjoy your job. It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> but I wanted to... The ideal reader I had in my head was someone, not someone who's necessarily experienced what Vanessa has, but someone who would find comfort in seeing a portrayal of a victim who is engaging with her own abuse in ways that we don't usually see. That was really important to me, but that's also bro pretty broad. You know, it, it, it doesn't have to be the exact circumstances. It's just trying to honor the complexity, the complexity of it. 
Yeah. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there? <laughs> Always. I mean, it's an easy, easy go-to answer, but I think perseverance is so important. It took me such a long time to get this book right, and I was never afraid of tearing it apart and starting over. I was maybe a little too eager to, to, to start over to the point where I wrote so many different openings to this but like probably like a couple dozen different attempts and the setting would change and the point of view would change but i was never afraid of that work and, and and never afraid to to stick with it and that was really important but also viewing the process even if you have to throw away hundreds of pages of work the process is always teaching you something and if you keep at it, by the time you do get the book where it needs to be, you're going to be so experienced as a writer because of all those failed attempts. That's that's my best piece of advice. Just like don't be don't be afraid of the fail, the failure, because it's helping you all along the way. That's great. Well, thank you so much for thank sharing you. your thank you so much and for writing this book, which I will not stop thinking about. <laughs> Thank so you. Good. Such a good book. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Lauren Passell and her innovative PR company, Tink, for sponsoring today's episode. Please check them out at tinkmedia.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.